This podcast represents the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It should not be taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Please don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe, but more importantly leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Reviews not only help us grow listeners, but also help us grow as a show, improve our content, and make us better. is Gentry McCreary, who is an anthropologist and... No? No, no. I'm not an anthropologist. Right off the bat, no. I'm no. Okay. All right. So a I'm going to let you introduce so- yourself. A mere social psychologist, not an Yes. He's one of yeah. my people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let you introduce yourself, actually. But I just want to I want to say one thing before I let you do that is I want to apologize to you because when I first reached out to you, I called you Dr. Gentry because I think I got your name wrong because I thought your last name was Gentry. It happens a lot. So Yeah. I've leaned into it. In fact, I I had a blog for a while and it was Dr. Gentry's blog. So you're, yeah, it's (laughs) no offense at all was taken. Okay. Well, I just wanted to point that out and just say I'm sorry about that. So since I already insulted you twice now because I've gotten your profession wrong, I probably oh should God. know that We're about to my a guess. rosy start. We're off Good to job, Dimitri. Good job. You got right into it. You got right into it with the hazing. Why not? Right. That's right. This is how we started uh, on our show is we just tell you, we tell you what you are. Yeah. Just breaking me down before you build me back up here. <laughs> Why don't you tell us um, what you do? And I, what I do know that I'm right about is that you are, you created dyad strategies. That's right. And why don't you tell us what you do and what dyad strategies is and what kind of research they do? Yeah. So, so my background is in higher education. So I worked in student affairs and specifically uh, with Greek life um, on college campuses, uh, including about five years as the director of Greek life at uh, the University of Alabama, which was a really interesting job. If you've seen the, the Bama Rush documentaries or uh, any of the craziness that is Greek life at Bama. So I, I rode that dragon for almost five years uh, and then did my PhD while I was at Alabama, which is really what led me into this work. I was interested in a number of topics, but took a course in moral psychology from Steve Toma, and that just opened my eyes to uh, really what I wanted to, to do with my career and what I wanted to study. So uh, a paper that I wrote in that class ended up becoming the proposal and so looked at fraternity hazing through the lens of uh, moral psychology, kind of Neil Kolbergian moral judgment, Bandura moral disengagement, some of that stuff. So uh, so that was really what got me into this work <clears throat> and then teamed up with my then research, now business partner, Josh Schutz, who's uh, a quant guy, stats guy. Um, and we started just doing some research that we were interested in. So we were just kind of 
scholar practitioners out there, you know, both working as, as university administrators, you know, publishing research around hazing, brotherhood, and um, some groups approached us after a conference presentation, uh, probably in, I don't know, 2015, 2016, somewhere in there, and they said, hey, we really like this research you're doing. Would you do some research for us? And we said, oh, you'll pay us to do this. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we, we began the company then. And so Diet Strategies has partnered with 20 national fraternities and sororities. Uh, and then we do a lot of campus-based work as well. And in essence, what we do is survey research. So we've got a number of instruments that we've built, <clears throat> uh, some of which are inspired by Aldo's research. So our hazing motivation stuff really gets at his macro theory. So social dominance and a loyalty commitment and solidarity. And so we measure that. We measure tolerance for hazing. We measure affinity, brotherhood, sisterhood, social culture, about 25 data points uh, that groups use to measure the impact of the things that they're doing. Uh, and then to identify problems before their problems, right? So uh, the insurance companies really like us. Uh, we help our clients essentially say, hey, these these handful of chapters, they're, they're maybe going down a bad path. We need to do some sort of an intervention before something happens. So in essence, that's what we do. We're, we're, we're survey researchers and we, we work primarily with fraternity and sorority members, uh, but do some work in athletics and, and with other groups as well. So that's uh, in a nutshell what we do. Okay. The reason that we wanted to have you on is because you're an expert in the topic that we spoke about last week, uh, which is hazing, and because of this Northwestern story, which I do want to ask you about. But I wanted to, I wanted to ask you first about the definition of hazing, because that was one of the things that we debated last week. A lot of the definitions that come from people that don't do the research from the media, from universities, it surrounds the definition being something about um, humiliation and, and doing things that people don't like to do. But that's not the definition that diet strategies and the research that we talked about, Aldo Simino, uh, that's how, how you guys define it. So how does the research uh, section, I guess, is... yeah. For lack of I'll, I'll try to channel my of... inner Aldo here because Aldo and I are in total <laughs> agreement on this. And he pronounces it Chimino, by the way. So it's Aldo Chimino. Chimino. Uh, very Italian. I'm 0 for yeah, 3, so Italian. I struck out. So there we go. <laughs> um, Aldo, uh, Aldo's work has been a tremendous inspiration to mine. So Aldo and I were writing our doctoral dissertations around the same time, and I read his first article the 2011 article, not long after I was finished. And, and that was such an inspiration. Aldo's the only living anthropologist who studies hazing. So he's really looking, most of the other people who've studied hazing are mere low social psychologists like myself. Aldo is, <clears throat> his research is so important because he's been able to, uh, in his field work, literally embed himself and observe, you know, what's going on with hazing fraternities. And he's done some really interesting lab experiments, some of which you talked about last week. But Aldo's definition, I think, is right. And Aldo would say there's so many bad definitions out there that are overly vague, that can be so broadly interpreted. And so Aldo's um, qualifier around group relevance is really important. Uh, and, and so uh, if you think about Let's take a fraternity versus um, a football team. Since we're going to talk about Northwestern, this perfect example. 
Uh, if you're on a football team, physical fitness is very group relevant, right? So like running laps, running stairs, doing all that, like that is very relevant to what that group is going to be expected to do. With a fraternity, that's that's different, right? It's 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 not the same. So there's this question of group relevance. And so we took Aldo's definition and in our model policy, essentially what we said is uh, any activity that is not group relevant and is excessive, degrading, demeaning, or illegal. So those those are the four qualifiers that I use. Um, and so if it's group relevant, it might not be hazing, even if it is a little uh, excessive, right? So for example, you know, running laps uh, as punishment, a basketball coach making everyone run laps, that might look different if he's just making the freshmen run laps or making the targeting them out for for different treatment. But that I, I think that notion of group relevance is one that's particularly important. And people weren't really talking about that until Aldo came along and kind of offered that definition. They were just trying to offer these catch-all definitions and apply them equally across the board to all sorts of groups. And, and it just wasn't working, right? And, and students were challenging it and you got a lot of pushback. And so essentially what Aldo's definition has allowed us to do is to be a little more subjective about it and look at any activity that any group is doing and apply some criteria and determine is this does this make sense for this group or does it not and and i think that's really been a valuable a valuable addition to the conversation well i'm glad you brought up your model policy because i did read it in in the model policy towards the end there are banned policies so certain things are i think the section is 3 for prohibited behaviors and a few of the prohibited behaviors, um, I'm reading bullying, cyberbullying, um, disruptive activities, disorderly conduct, endangerment, things like that. Hazing has its own section. Sure. But why, why would hazing not be bullying, for instance? And why would it not be endangerment? Because when you look at, for instance, what happened in Northwestern, and you said one of the definitions may be legal, but what they were doing how is that not illegal or endangerment or bullying? So I think it's a lot of the delineation. Things. Yeah. So that, and, and to be clear, what that model policy is, is it's a model organizational misconduct code. So a lot of campuses, they've got these codes of student conduct, right? And, and that's what they use to, to regulate student behavior. And, and the challenge that we saw is that they were trying to awkwardly graft student organizations into those individual student conduct policies, and it wasn't working very well. Uh, and so, you know, for a campus who needed to investigate and adjudicate, for example, a fraternity who's hazing, those individual codes of conduct weren't really well designed to do that. And so that model, model policy is really a framework for here's how you should handle this stuff when we're talking about a, a group, any group, not just a fraternity or sorority or, or sports team, any any student organization on campus. Hazing and bullying are, are very similar. In fact, when I started writing, when I wrote my dissertation, I could count at the time on my two hands the number of good published articles that were out there related to hazing. There wasn't very much. And so I pulled a lot of my theoretical framework from the, the fairly expansive literature that was out there on bullying, because there, there was a lot more uh, at the time. Hazing obviously being different because it's about uh, exclusion from a group, right? So you want either 
membership or participatory legitimacy in a group. Uh, and that might be very different from just individual. I don't like Dimitri. I'm going to mess with him. I'm going to bully him and pick on him. It, it doesn't have anything to do with a, a group context. That's just me messing with him. And so because of that, the, the group psychology that often shows up uh, in, in, in hazing, there's some there's some things that really make it distinct from bullying. Um, and, and so I, 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 a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap, but but some distinct differences as well. Yeah, I, I think I think the group aspect of hazing, like you mentioned, might make it a, a difference. But where I, I, I'm puzzled is that one of the criteria I mentioned is that you know he has to be, if it's not group relevant, then that might be qualified as, as hazing. But who decide if it's group relevant or not? Let, let's say that the seniors say that oh the hazing it's in the benefit of the group for cohesion or for you know you have to go to those to, to those to those um test to make the yep. team and we are, we are going to be better for it so that in itself is group activity group uh relevancy so is there a, a mechanism or should there be a mechanism or to to actually say this is not group living and you should not be the one saying it is or the school says it is or the coach says it is not the players mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the that's the critique of of Aldo's definition is that it is subjective, right? It requires you to sit down and evaluate an activity and decide, a is this group relevant, and, and then if we decide that it is, then b is it dangerous? Is it degrading? Is it excessive? Is it illegal? Different people might fall on different sides of that. Um, you know, the lawyer answer, and I'm not a lawyer, but I work with lawyers a lot, is it's kind of the reasonable person standard, right? Like what, what would your grandma think if your grandma is a reasonable person? Like, would she think it's group relevant? If she thinks so, like if I could convince my grandmother uh, that, that it's relevant to the group, then yeah, I could probably convince a jury that it's relevant to a group. So, you know, at the end of the day, when it comes to these cases, yeah, like the, that's ultimately the definition that matters is the, is the legal definition. And I think mm -hmm. that's certainly going to, to come into play at Northwestern based on the, flurry of lawsuits that have been filed in the last couple of weeks right. so 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 in your experience seniors have a leeway of deciding what's group relevancy the, the coaches or the hierarchy of you know supervision don't have any say in what the group decides to do or the seniors decide to go for to do for the group not not necessarily right i mean it it, it depends on the group uh there's no there's no hard and fast rule i i was fascinated by your all's conversation last week and uh, stefan i think it was you who said that you know this you know, what we see at Northwestern, this has to be just proliferant throughout college athletics and, and fraternities and sororities that this is just the group that got caught. And I, and I, I actually disagree with that a little bit. And, and let me explain. Um, I, I just watched Oppenheimer the other day and I loved it. And I, I thought this would be a good analogy of like tightly controlled environments like Los Alamos laboratory, very tightly controlled environment, not too far below that. I would put division one power five football locker room, right? Like there's nothing that happens. What was going on with Northwestern is not at some house off campus in a basement. Like this was happening in the locker room after games, after practice. That is such a tightly controlled environment. There is no way that the responsible adults who were supposed to be in charge didn't know what was going on. Like just, just not possible. So so in that situation, you typically don't see that sort of thing happening 
with a sports team, certainly not at that level, Division One, Power Five football, because the coaches just don't allow it. Like that's that's silliness. That's like it, it's not contributing to the team's culture. They might have other fun little traditions that people might define as hazing. You know, getting on a table and singing the fight song or or something like that. And then we could say, okay, is it really demeaning? Is it really degrading? Is it really humiliating? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But does it does it build that team culture? Does it break down barriers? Is it group relevant in that way? Well, right, maybe, but within a fraternity or sorority or, or you know, a lot of other groups, but I think fraternities especially, you have 19, 20, 21-year-old young people with absolute power over the lives of the 18-year-old new members who are joining. There is no coach. There is no responsible adult who ultimately has any power which is why you typically see the most egregious hazing, certainly the hazing that, that most often leads in injury or death, almost exclusively limited to fraternities and, and, and to a lesser extent sororities. You never see severe hazing uh, within college athletics, almost never. Right? There was a case a couple of years ago with the baseball team at Arkansas State University. Before that, you have to go back like 20 years uh, to a rugby uh, Ken Christensen was, I think, a, a rugby or lacrosse player at the University of Minnesota, was killed in a hazing incident. So there's 20 years separate the last two athletic hazing deaths, whereas there's, I think, on average, three or four per year on college campuses coming from fraternities or sororities. So it, it, it is very different. And, and, and responsible adults who have power, i.e. coaches, typically don't allow that sort of thing to happen. Uh, and yeah. so that's what I think makes the Northwestern case so unique. As soon as I read that, I was like, man, there's no way the coaches weren't aware of what's going on. Like, it's yeah. just not possible. It defies credulity. Were you were you surprised? Very. Yeah. I mean, I keep reading, like, it's, it's mind-blowing that, especially a school like Northwestern, like, let's, like, Northwestern's culture, its reputation academically, and, and, you know, now these lawsuits, it's like volleyball, baseball, like this was systemic throughout apparently the entire athletic department. If if, if what's being alleged in these lawsuits are, are true, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I was shocked when I read some of this stuff, because, yeah. again, this isn't a fraternity house basement off campus. This is stuff that's happening in locker rooms. Yeah. Point taken. I think I, I probably did too much generalization. But let, let me let me ask differently then. Should there be a, a different definition for, I mean, I guess, is there some okay hazing, some acceptable hazing, uh, sports tradition or team, team tradition that if you're a, a freshman, you'd have, you know, you expect to go through this kind of tradition. It might not be, uh, you might not arise to the point of humiliation, but you might have to do this because the, the seniors before you had to do it. Um, and and with that fair to say, that's part of the culture in in college um, sports. It doesn't have to be violent or uh, degrading, but is that a tradition that you have to do things when you're a freshman? Do, do I think that some things that might be construed as hazing could be beneficial for group culture, team culture, bonding, brotherhood, belonging, connection? Absolutely, right. Um, so. The challenge for colleges and universities is to have a subjective way to determine what's acceptable and what's not, right? And, and, and so I think that's, as opposed to 
the way a lot of colleges have historically defined it, which is just a running list of prohibited behaviors, uh, mm -hmm. Aldo's definition gives you the ability to sit down and subjectively say, okay, like, I can see the benefit of this. I can see how this is working. And, and, and after talking to all the members of this team, how it breaks down barriers, brings people together, is it demeaning? Maybe a little bit, but maybe I'm willing to accept a little bit of demeaning in order to accomplish these things that we've agreed are, are, are relevant to the group. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult line for colleges and universities to walk in particular because this is they're not the only ones who deal with it. And, you know, Dimitri, you talked about that and Aldo's talking about that as hazing as a human problem, but it tends to be much more of an issue on college campuses. We're seeing a lot more with high schools, especially sports teams, you know, with, within adolescence, but um, yeah, there, there, there's a need to address it and to be able to name it when you see it and, and, uh, and, and deal with it. And so having a correct definition I, I, some people might be listening to this and scratching their heads. You know, why are they so caught up on the definition? It's because the definition is actually important. That's the starting point of like how we address it is to be able to describe accurately what it is so we can know it when we see it and then and then address it. So I, I, I do think the definition is really important. I would think that helps shape policy as well, based Absolutely. upon the definition. And one of the things that we had talked about during that podcast, it was mentioned and thrown around a no tolerance policy where there's this blanket statement of no hazing. And I think I, I'm going to speak for Steph and Dimitri, but I think our take was it that that's not going to be very effective. No, no it can't be. You, you can't be draconian in your approach to this. And when I coach campuses, essentially what I tell them is this, like you have to address all levels of hazing, right? And I use this like one to 10 continuum to talk about hazing, like, and even the level one stuff, silly stuff, errand running, cleaning, whatever. It might technically be hazing. It's not the sort of stuff that keeps you up at night. But if that's happening in a team, you have to address it because today's level one hazing becomes tomorrow's more serious hazing, right? And so colleges have to address any hazing regardless of severity. But zero tolerance implies that, oh, we're going to kick you off campus if you're doing even the lowest level hazing. And, and, and I agree with you, Suzanne, that's not only impractical, it would probably be counterproductive in terms of just pushing the behavior further underground. And, and I think that's Aldo's other big contribution to our understanding of the problem. A lot of people like to moralize hazing to kind of get on their high horse and all oh, these terrible kids, these terrible people who are doing this. And, you know, Aldo comes along and essentially says, you know, this is this is in our nature. This is part of who we are. This is this is wired in. Uh, it, it makes you take a little perspective, uh, you know, particularly if you're someone who's working on a college campus who's who's trying to address this stuff, to say you know, these aren't bad people; these are just human beings doing the things that human beings have been doing for thousands of years. So, it, I think it gives you some valuable perspective, and it, and it's further reason why zero tolerance probably is never going to work. Right, and so that's the other thing I wanted to to find out is: Do you agree with Aldo's theory? I know you guys talked about it on your podcast. Do you mm. subscribe to the automatic accrual theory? And this is just an evolutionary kind of freeloading and anti-freeloading policy. Yeah, he, he's demonstrated it experimentally in the laboratory. We're actually working with him right now on, on um, demonstrating it in, in, in the real world. Uh, I, I do agree with him. Yeah, I, I, because I see it in my own work. When you look at the groups 
and, and this is just purely anecdotal qualitative observation, but it's important. It sheds light on what he's talking about. When you look at the groups and let's look fraternities and sororities are my expertise. So let's talk about that. The groups that often get in trouble for hazing, the groups that are engaged in the most egregious hazing are almost always, not always, but almost always perceived to be the socially elite, quote unquote, top tier groups, the groups with the most benefit. So you, you join this group and you've got social clout, you have status, you have access to, to all the things you want to have access to in college. And so I'm willing to subject myself to a lot of things in a group like that in order to be part of that group. And so uh, essentially what Aldo's saying is that that groups have caught wise to that. And we can't let these people just exploit us, right? The free rider problem he talks about. So yeah, hazing has evolved to address that. I think that's why you see, uh, Aldo's theory explains why you see hazing tend to be more severe in groups that have more benefits and more status. So I, that that's, to me, it, it's, it's obvious that what he's talking about is the correct way to think about it. And what you mentioned too is also similar to when we talk about exchange theory and social psychology. Sure. Right. You and him kind of agree also on the, the policy shouldn't be zero tolerance. We all agree on that. You have sort of an embrace and reform kind of an idea, agree that it's going to happen, kind of look at it and decide whether or not this is something you should punish or not. Or His embrace and reform ideas are very controversial in certain circles. Uh, I'm very fascinated by the concept. I wouldn't say I'm in the minority. I think people are curious with what he has to say, but we live in a world that is dominated by at least on college campuses and with fraternities and sororities, legal liability, fear of lawsuits, right? Trial lawyers out there. And we're seeing that at Northwestern right now, the flurry of lawsuits that have come out in the last week or so. So embracing reform essentially says, look like we're, we're going to essentially take an informed consent approach to hazing that will allow students to agree to be hazed up to a certain level. Uh, but if we can draw the line short of anything that we deem dangerous and, and, and we can trust in good faith that groups will stop there, might we, if the goal is to prevent injury or harm or, or, or death, then might allowing some hazing work to address that? And I'm not convinced that it wouldn't. I, I'm fascinated by this idea, but I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting for a fraternity's insurer to allow them to take uh, that that stance, I, I've yet to I've yet to see the group that has signed off on that. So we'll yeah, you had an attorney we'll uh, suggest <laughs> a contract when you enter a fraternity, them handing you a contract saying absolutely, you know, to to rush this fraternity, you're going to have to agree to this level of hazing. I think one of the suggestions right. was, you know, you're going to be driven to to some you know 17 miles away or something and dropped off with like your underwear and you're going to have to walk no. back. I don't know any kid that's going to and have their parents sign off on that contract. Right. Um, especially in places like where it's cold. And then know, is it hazing if the person's volunteering to do it in essence? Oh, it's hazing, but no, you're, no, you're no, contractually obligated to agree to it now. I, I'm, more prog I'm more progressive. I, I'd say I, I would allow it. When, we, when we're done defining what, what, what hazing is, I'd probably say, fine, if the, the, the community, the, the fraternity, the, the team wants to do, wants to have some type of initiation uh, tradition, 
let's do some sublimation. Let's put it into good that you'd have to do so many community hours. You know, you have to go and clean up trash downtown or you have to go and feed the poor. And you have, and then, and then when you do all this A, B, C, and D, then you can be part of our community. It could, yep. it could be used to good. So allow them to haze their, their, their freshmen, but in a, in a good and acceptable and, and, and good way. You know, I don't yep. think it's impossible. I think, that Dimitri, you mentioned this idea of voluntary hazing, that, that students go along with it. And I agree completely. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, that, you know, that absolves the group, right? It's not hazing if the if the new members, you know, kind of agreed to, to go along. And that's a really, it's a problematic way of thinking about it, because there's a lot of good reasons why someone would 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 go along with something even that is 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 dangerous or or problematic. And so, the new guys were okay with it is not a, a defense. The, the reason that hazing works to the extent that it, that it does work, I think what it does better than anything is that it creates a sense of accomplishment, right? So I, I make it through a difficult new member process and I feel like I've earned something. I, I feel like I've accomplished something and, and, you know, it's, Hey, it's high five. We made it through what we're starting to demonstrate in the research, and, and Aldo's demonstrating it in his, we're de- demonstrating it in ours, though, is that, that, that short-term sense of accomplishment does not yield, so in Aldo's research, higher solidarity to the group. He's demonstrated that, and what we've demonstrated in our work is that it doesn't produce any additional commitment to the group. It, it, it produces very high levels of commitment in the short term, but when you move out even a semester or a year from the ending of the hazing, there's no correlation at all between the severity of the initiation and one's levels of commitment to the group. So uh, it, it, whatever accomplishments are, are there in terms of what hazing does positively for the group uh, appear to be minimal and, and short-lived. And, but, it, but it does create that short-term sense of accomplishment, and people really seem to fixate on that. And young men want that rite of passage. They do want to to feel like they've accomplished something in, in, in becoming part of that group. Right. I was going to say, we'll probably be, we'll be more interested in knowing the long-term effect, right? In, oh, sure. in, in the moment, in the, in the four years that you, you're, you're part of the team, you feel good about it. But the, I think that player from Northwestern did say he went to PTSD later on in his life, you know, right after he finished college, mm-hmm. some team sports. So you might think you might be caught in a moment and believing in an idea that you're actually passively getting into, not, not, not because you wanted to, but because you feel like you have to. Um, and then in the long term, probably be a different reality altogether. No question. We had that debate last week when we talked about cognitive dissonance. It's something right. where you you think yeah. you're liking them. But then I, I pointed out, well, if you're going to do that, then why don't you continue to haze them all four years or wherever? And that was the debate that we had. Uh, as we're running out of time here, I do want to ask two more things real quick. First, do you agree with my proposition that immigration is hazing? Is a form of hazing. I I don't know that I that I got that reference. Okay, that was that was one of the points I made last week. Is that the things that we do to the people that come into this country can oh, be construed sure. as hazing? But you know, I thought about it over the course of the last couple of weeks because our episode was two weeks ago now, and in the context of the definition that we're using, which is that the behaviors that we require have to be outside of the scope of the group. Some people would say that what we make our newcomers do would be within the scope of the group. You know, we make them, you know, learn sure. about the country and pass a test. 
how many native citizens could pass the test? I but that's know. exactly what I was going to say is how many people that were born in this country can pass this test? Or, so does or that go to the excessive component? Right. So what I'm saying is, wouldn't that still qualify as, as hazing? Yeah, I, I think it would come down to that notion of uh, excessive, right? Is 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 the test excessive? You you, you know you, you have to have a process, right? Uh, is it group relevant? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, you could you could make that case. I don't know that I would make that case, but I could see how one could make that case. And that's, I think we also talked about some of the excessive things that happen to some immigrants that come in that get arrested and get thrown into sure. places they shouldn't get thrown into which is not what the government does. It's what people who disagree with the way the government does things. They're taking things outside of their hands and doing it. Absolutely. So, um, before we let you go, unless anyone else has any other questions, I wanted to ask you one more thing since you are uh, an Alabama graduate and uh, oh I am a, I'm a lifelong uh, Hurricanes fan. Just want to point that out. Oh yeah, um, I I grew up down here and <laughs> in, uh, in South Florida, and I've been a Hurricanes fan my whole life. One of our first episodes that we did, we did um, I think it was after the Heat lost Game Six to Boston. It was one of the worst losses in South Florida sports history, and we did a a um, top top five worst losses in sports history, South Florida sports history. And one of my really good friends is from Alabama, and he's a huge Tide fan. And he will not let go that I did not put the 1993 Sugar Bowl on that list where George <laughs> Teague stripped Lamar Thomas running down the sidelines because I think that's until, – until the Nick Saban years, I think that was the only thing Alabama had anything to, to look forward to, to, to look back on. So I'm asking you, do you believe so that that I'm is a, one of the I'm... worst losses in Miami sports history to make him happy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not as admittedly familiar with the canon of Miami historic football losses. My favorite Miami loss, my undergraduate degree, and my heart is with the University of Tennessee Volunteers. I live in Knoxville, and the 86 Sugar Bowl was a 35-7 to beatdown uh, that the Volunteers laid on the Hurricanes. That's one of my earliest memories as a kid. I was like seven years oh old for that game. So that was, uh, that was, I hope, uh, would make the list because that was Thank you. national champion contender Vinny Testaverde, and the Vols came yeah. to New Orleans and just wow. laid the wood to the Hurricanes that game. Appreciate you that. Jimmy, sure you walked through that one yourself. Not that yeah. he's taking any pleasure in telling you. No, not at all. Not at all. No. no. <laughs> no. SEC, SEC, no, no, not at all. Not any pleasure. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank um, you. And thanks, thanks for coming on. Um, I hope we can consider you a friend of the show now. And Devin, uh, a friend of the show, and I uh, look forward to continuing to listen. Y'all have some uh, engaging conversations. I appreciate yeah. it. And maybe we can have you back again if we have um, if we have something to ask, maybe with social psychology, Suzanne can uh, can help us out yeah. with that because uh, she's on that. And now that I know that you're a social psychologist properly, <laughs> I can uh, I can do this properly. Not an anthropologist. I mean, not definitely not an anthropologist. That's no. Aldo. <laughs> <laughs> I 
learned something this week that I didn't know. Um, you didn't know something? Surprise, surprise. Very, very <laughs> clever. Very clever. But yes, I didn't know something. And what I discovered was I don't know how young people speak. I, I just, I didn't know this. And so I thought it'd be a good idea if we have a new segment on this show. The three of us try to explain how young people speak. And why are so you think, making us sound old? I mean, speak for yourself, guys. I mean, well, <laughs> who said I'm old? Well, I mean, who, who, I mean, who said maybe you're making us sound old right here? Maybe. Well, well, some of us are. And maybe the people that aren't old here can help us understand things that the young people say. So let's play the imaging here and then uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll get this going. Generation X? Speak? Now, to be fair, there are only two Generation X's on this. And one of them just claimed that she wasn't old. But okay, we'll Correct. go with that. The other yes, one uh, is <laughs> technically a millennial by uh, date. <laughs> but, but I believe at heart he's one of us. He's Generation but, X. Actually, I'm going to take that as a compliment. I don't know why we get upset about that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. my, so, my reflex was my, my 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 reflex was feeling offended, but when I thought about it in a second, I was like, "Wait, that sounds pretty good. I'm young." Okay. So, but by definition, Generation X is anyone born before eighty-one. So, just for the definition, anyway. So, the term that I heard um, the youth uh, told me this week was something called DoorDash and Smash. What? And since you're the young, you're the young person uh, on this panel, Suzanne, or the young person that, the person that claims to be the young person, <laughs> can you explain to the people that are not young in our audience this, what DoorDash this, and Smash is? Well, please somebody explain because this is news to me. This is a new one. I have I not know, I, heard I, this one. I, I I know I understand DoorDash. Can I phone a friend and ask my kids who are here? <laughs> no, no, this is this is not who wants to be a millionaire. No. Okay, so I, I, I should get the teenager and see if he knows. So DoorDash and Smash. Well, I, I understand DoorDash, but I also understand Smash like separately. But I don't understand the two together. Okay, I, you want to explain the two separately, and then we can put them together. <laughs> <laughs> well, since I was saying DoorDash is like a it's a delivery company, right? Mm -hmm. You can order food to DoorDash, like you know, any other delivery company. And then I think youngsters use smash as a as a term, you know, to have you know intimate relationship with someone. Like you go out and then you go to your bros. That's such a medical way of putting something, Doctor DeGraff. <laughs> <laughs> Or is, is it sports related? Is, is it, is a, it a, like volleyball? Is it like the equivalent or? of Netflix and chill? Yes. As a matter of fact, it is the equivalent of Netflix and chill, which even the old people know. So what DoorDash and Smash is, what I've been told, is that you order DoorDash and then you time the arrival of the DoorDash driver to the amount of time it'll take you to smash. And so- <laughs> Oh my God. As you are completing your- <laughs> sma That's the- You're that's smashing. Dimitri, this, you're smashing. The DoorDash arrives. 
And do you win something if you like? I mean, well, it, okay. Is, just, is, is it a Jimmy Jones? Understanding these. Is the delivery in a in a Jimmy Jones time frame? <laughs> because that that, that that could be a good thing. Well, you have the time frame on the uh, on the on the app. On the, app. the beauty of these apps is that they tell you when the drivers picked it up. They tell you when okay. it's on the way, and depending on you know how good you are. I don't know, man. I mean, you know, you know the Jimmy Jones slogan, right? Is it super? What is it fast or something like something super fast? So yeah, Jimmy Johns is like super fast delivery. So Jimmy, how can Jimmy Johns? Did you call them Jimmy Jones? <laughs> that Jimmy was Jones. Tweeter. He said Jimmy Johns. Jimmy, oh, Johns. Jimmy Johns. Okay. <laughs> Jimmy they, Jimmy Johns is super quick. Like I've so, ordered Jimmy Johns at my old office, and like. And like they've arrived like in fifteen minutes, no joke. Right, so it, it can be, mm -hmm. it can be a good, a good thing. It's so Jimmy John's and jerk is not going to work. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you're it's very not, poetic it's... with this, with the rhyming. I'm a rapper in my previous life, is what I was. Apparently, okay. Doordash and smash. I mean, is Door that the new? Smash is, is this is this week's the new Netflix and chill? Understanding youth speak. We will have one. Uh, what did they say now? Bet. Right? Bet. Get it. Mm -hmm. Bet. 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 I don't know what that means, but we'll 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 use that the next time on uh okay. on Generation X. That's what it means. Explains you exactly. I just exactly that's exactly what it means. I just used it in the context. I said I said bet. Bet. That means we will do it. <laughs> okay. I clearly I'm the old man in this. I think we need well, to have a stump Dimitri with terminology. Oh, absolutely. That's a great idea. We'll put a segment together and just sending the youth of the day. You know, let yeah. me tell you something. We did this last night. Maria found this quiz on Facebook of like children's, not children's, but like youth terms. And she was quizzing me and I got all of them except one, right? All of them except one. Now they were all, they were all multiple choice. But so you could I did have like all of them right. reduced something. True, but nonetheless, I got all of them. You know, when we take our boards, they're multiple choice tests. We deduce the answer sometimes too, but that doesn't make us any less board certified. Yeah. Suzanne, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just Thank you very much. All right, play Any nice kids. Play yes, nice. yes. We move from Steph, that. Dimitri thinks he has the riz. You're going to riz me up. Riz me up the next time. Not this time. Riz me up the next time. You're such a young person, Suzanne. With your Absolutely. We have so much to learn. Stuff. And I'll figure it out. I got, <laughs> I got kids. They'll, they'll, they'll tell me stuff eventually. Don't be the uncool dad. What we need on, <laughs> what we need on this podcast is a legit young person. Like a 25-year-old or something like that. That's what we legit need, but to just come on here and like speak. You you kind of sound like one legit. Legit is like a kind of young a youngster term. Yeah, legit. Legit, mm -hmm. legit. Yeah, we legit See? one. See? Yeah, you See? can do it. You can do I it. I speak young. That was like maybe 20 years ago, but you know. <laughs> so what you're saying is I'm okay. young, not. I think and I'm gonna I need more than water for this. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Can we move on, please? Yeah, let's move on. This segment has uh, outlived its usefulness. Can we move on yeah. to something a little bit more serious? Yeah, we have a show. So the other thing that I found out this week, and I didn't know this, and it's probably, I probably should know this since, you know, this is my field. I actually did hear about this at one point, but I kind of, it kind of went in my mind and kind of went out the other, but it kind of was brought back into my consciousness is that our field, mental health, is moving away from the term commit suicide. Have you guys heard this? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think maybe a year or two ago, somebody was making a, I forgot if it was um, in my training program or somewhere. Some There was a grand rounds in, you know, in psychiatry and in mental health in general, in psychology. I think there's a movement um, where we are trying to be less, stigmatizing with our words and more inclusive and trying to um stop labeling people with their with their diagnosis or their, or their issues and mm-hmm. um it's subject with the lgbtq um you know uh, acronym and what's what's normal or what's accepted to say or not and then i think it's built over everything and we, we know in terms of terminology and i do think uh at that time there was a movement i heard about the movement where you say suicide is, is, you know, you're a victim of a suicide, you know. Died, died by suicide. Right. As a, as mm-hmm. a, as a, as a it, yeah, it's, it implies that you suffered something you died from, right? It's not, it, yeah. when you say, when you say you commit, it, it kind of like removed the, the passiveness out of it. It's, it sounds more like active, more like a decision that you took. You know, it's, it's semantic, it, you, you know, it's semantic, but I think it, it matters. Here's the, here's some, phrasing that I got online. Uh, Suzanne sent an article, and this is in that article. It's um, W-Y-F-F, Greenville, South Carolina. Commit implies that a person who died had complete culpability, when in fact the National Institute of Mental Health said depression and mental illness are leading risk factors of suicide. Quote, it's important because committed makes it feel like a crime, unquote. And that's a quote from Susan Crooks, this is continuing the quote. And so when we say that word, it implies it where we want to say died by what we said at Walt's life celebration. My son died by treatment resistant anxiety and depression. All right. Look, if, if changing the terminology makes you feel better, I am not in any position to tell people how to speak, to tell them what makes them feel better or why not. But from a mental health perspective, I think we need to, when we're talking about changing an entire lexicon, we need to consider something here. The, the, word, the word we're changing here, the word commit, when you use that word, when you're talking about crime, whenever we, tell, whenever we say something like somebody committed a crime and we do that before they're convicted, we always say something like allegedly mm-hmm. afterwards because we don't actually know since they haven't actually gone through trial because the implication is when someone says that they committed something, we know for sure that they actually did the action because the word commit is a verb and it means to carry into action deliberately. In other words, to take an action. It says mm-hmm. nothing about the reasons why you did that. Okay, so what we're doing here when we're trying to say that there's culpability is we're taking a step, we're taking a leap beyond what the word actually means, right? When someone does suicide, let's just use that for now, there is no doubt that that's what they did, okay? Now, the reasons behind that more than likely will be mental health, 
okay? Mm-hmm. And when someone does crime, okay, if we're going to use the crime analogy, for instance, all right, there could be a whole lot of reasons for that, not necessarily mental health. There could be a whole lot of other reasons for that, okay? And what we're not doing here when we say someone commits suicide, we're not assigning culpability, okay? I agree that mental health is a big deal in this, and it's not necessarily a culpability issue. That mental health is the problem, depression, treatment resistance, and all of those things. But my issue here is when we start changing lexicons and start changing the meaning of words, I think we start down a dangerous slope. I'm totally in favor of any measures or any new ideas or, or movement that would, you know, increase awareness or increase um, involvement or or decrease stigmatization of mental health. You know, if just by changing the term makes a difference in in, in terms of people being more receptive to mental health or feeling less alienated or people feeling, you know, bad about thinking about suicide and not, not disclosing it to any family members because they already know because it's going to be an active act, it's going to be a crime, like you said, they won't probably seek help. Whereas if by any chance, changing the term, make it more acceptable for people that are suffering to be able to disclose it to their family members because they see it as a, as a part of the disease that even though if they would do the act, they, they are suffering from it, and not actively doing it. So that would probably open the door for, for them to but be able to talk that about it. But do we know well, that that's true? we know that that's true? I'm sure there's some studies about it. I, I, right now, I can tell you. I've I actually it, looked that up. I couldn't there's, find there's, anything. There's not there's no study that say that's changing the term would would increase that changing that term had any impact on any decrease in that's what I was gonna say yeah I I don't think it's gonna change the rate suicide rates are going up they're increased okay and and my my issue here is this again and I'm gonna say this again so that there's no misunderstanding Mm -hmm. if you want to change the term because it makes you feel better fine I'm all for that whatever it is that makes you feel better. My issue here is that if we're going to redefine terms, you get into a, I'm a big proponent of slippery slope argument. If there's good reason for them, if there's good reason for them, if you start redefining terms, term redefining for me is a slippery slope argument that I think has validation because Mm -hmm. that's something that's happening now in our lives and reality. And it's, it's something that we need to be careful about because you can redefine any term you want. And, you know, terms have been redefined already. Truth is now whatever it is you want. Neil deGrasse Tyson has said that there's two different kinds of truths now. There's truth and then there's personal truth. Well, I didn't really, (laughs) there were two different truths. There are facts and there's now alternative facts. So sure. now, I mean, I think that I mean, comes from psychology with subjective truths. It's the same thing. And I get what you're saying, Dimitri. And I get that changing a term in, and in a sense, it's not stopping the fact that people are still ending their lives. Correct. It's a very right. serious matter and changing a term. If somebody feels better about saying died by suicide versus committed suicide, that's on, that's for them. And I agree with you, Dimitri, but I think and also to go along with what Steph was saying, something broader needs to be done because obviously right. changing a term is not going to affect 
the rates. And as you said, the rates are increasing. So something else needs to be done. And I think mental health awareness and suicide awareness, and they mm-hmm. have the national suicide hotline now mm-hmm. as well. All of those things, you want to mention um, that? I think would be more effective. So the suicide hotline, the national number for suicide hotline, if a person needs somebody to talk to, um, you can call 988, you can text it. And I also believe you can go online and chat as yeah. well. And they, they will help link you with services. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe, it, I believe it's through the website. Right, it's, it's, it's genius because most people, well, most young people are more connected through chatting, texting to the phone, you know, it's rare to see a kid make a phone call now it is. Um, but um, I, I'm just going to add, not to be too repetitive, if we agree that the stats probably has not changed or have not changed or will not change by just changing the term, everything still say as it was. But at the same time, it may make people that are suffering with depression or family members who have, uh, um, you know, loved one with, with died by suicide feel better, then why not? If it's if it's staying at an ev- at an even um, slope and it's not going worse or, or better, but people feel better about it, talking about it, making it more acceptable to discuss um, people who died by suicide instead of committing suicide, then I'm all for it. I'm all for something positive. Um, there's an argument people will say that um, those who died by suicide, it's because they didn't they didn't see any other avenues. It's not like they were they wanting to do it. It's like they didn't find any other avenues to end the suffering. You know, it's not a choice. It's just the only thing they could have done to feel, to get rid of that pain that they were dealing with. Um, so like you were saying, Dimitri, committing sounds more like a, there's a crime connotation with it, right? There's like, oh, I'm going to do that because I want to. I don't think it's that. I think they're doing it because they don't have any alternative. They don't want to live with that depression I, anymore. I, I don't think it's a crime. I, I I think we're no no I I'm not saying you, I'm not term. saying you said you no I, I'm not saying what I'm thinking is I'm saying that the term the connotation might sound I, like I, but I I don't I but that's my point is I don't I it's, think people it's not. are taking a leap when they're use when they're looking at it that way that they're misinterpreting that and they're equating that committing suicide they're equating is... it with a crime when they shouldn't right. be doing that and, 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 and that, that's way... my point of all this and and what I'm it's to your point about. If there's no other option or, or, you know, there are end stages to every disease. Right. You know, there's end right. stages yeah. to mm-hmm. cancer. There's end stages to renal failure. Suicide is an end stage to depression. It's still part of the disease. Yeah, I agree. So it's mm-hmm. a disease state. Saying somebody committed suicide is just stating that someone has end stage depression. It's right. It, we, could, we could just, we could redefine it medically if, if we right, wanted right. to, and it would be just equally as accurate saying that they died via end-stage depression. And I think Correct. that would be a much more accurate and more medical definition of it. I would advocate more for that because that that gives a more accurate representation of what it actually is. Yeah. But does that mean everyone who has depression is going to wind up with end-stage no. depression? No, just like everyone. I think there's a fine line that has to be on that as well yeah Yeah. but i think that when it's termed like that as well people think the doom and the gloom we're medical you got to look at it from our perspective we're in the same field but we're not the same we're talking about Mm -hmm. you and i right from a medical standpoint we're in a medical field 
And we've been trying to be more medical for years now, our, our psychiatry I'm talking about now. We've been more biological for the time that I've been in residency. When I started residency, speaking of being old now, it's been over 20 years. And that's when the movement sort of began to take big shape um, as far as a biological. It was before that, but that around 2000 is when it became like, we're going to do all medical stuff. And if we want to be medical, then we should start using terminology I agree. that is medical. And we need to start looking at these diseases from a medical perspective. So instead of reshaping terminology to just make people feel better, which again, which is fine, fine. but we should start looking at these things from a medical mm -hmm, perspective. Mm -hmm. We took out access to those axes, which were awful. Yeah. We took out the gaff, mm -hmm. which were awful. I was advocating for that when I was in residency because yeah. they didn't make us look like real doctors. We were different, you know, and they finally got rid of those things and finally went into a medical model of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. This would be the next step in that, in my opinion, is yeah. starting to, it's starting to terminate, it's starting to use terminology like doctors where there's end stages to these psychiatric diseases. You know, what is the end stage to schizophrenia? Mm -hmm. um, what is the end stage to depression? Well, it's, it's suicide. That, that's what it is. Well, we, we've, I think we all used the, that analogy to our patients that their condition, whether it is depression, schizophrenia, or any mental condition, they should see it just like diabetes or hypertension as a condition that even yes. if, they don't, if they don't take the medications, yes. if they neglect their, their diagnosis, then there would be consequences going that, that, down the path. So to your point, if we have been using this analogy, we can also use this, and this is the end stage of depression. If you don't take care of it, this is what could, not that it will happen. It's not a prediction. It's a, it's a possibility, right? It's a risk that you're That's taking right. with your life. But, you know, I, I'll just quickly swift, you know, I, I want to make a, just a little bit of, comparison to complicate things a little bit um we, we're saying that you know suicide it's not something it's not something that you do actively um, because it's part of the the suffering but i also made a caveat that sometime we've described when i mean we in the mental health community we've described suicidality as a narcissistic act right and when i when i talk about that i, I, I think more people that have um what we sometimes call um personality disorders or character pathology where you could see somebody with a cluster B or narcissistic behaviors would hurt themselves to hurt somebody else, right? They're not claiming they have depression. They, they, they're actually saying, I'm going to do this to hurt you, right? So in that context, in that context, if you're, you know, deep into mental health and you're, you're treating patients and you, you can have that kind of formulation, then you can make a, you can probably make a point that that was, committing, you know, to go back to, 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 you know, to, to the term that we use, to, we use most often, that would make sense, you know, that's just to be, to confuse people a little bit, but yeah. You know, and, and I see your point, both of you from the medical model, but we also know that there are other factors that contribute as well as biological factors to things like depression. And for a lot of people, it is long-term treatment um, but what we also know is that there are a lot of effective treatments that are out there. And I think that some people are unable to get the help 
whether it's medication, therapy, a combination of both, which we know is one of the most important um, factors with certain types of depression. Um, but I think that to call it end stage, I don't think you can really call it end stage until the act is completed. That's my take. to another relatively serious topic. I guess it is a serious topic, but I wanted to start it with a story about something that's, I guess it's, it's serious, but it's, it's funny at the same time. Did you guys hear this story about the Arizona? You probably didn't because it's a hockey story, but uh, Arizona Coyotes uh, hockey player, and I'm going to butcher his name, even though I'm Ukrainian, and I probably should get his name right. It's Alex Galchenyuk. I got it right. Okay. You didn't hear about this guy? No, no idea. You no. guys don't follow hockey, do you? Well, I'm, I'm a follower of Russia. I don't follow I'm, hockey I'm, as much. Does he play NHL or he play in Russia? It's in the NHL. He just the said Arizona. Arizona Coyotes. Oh, Arizona Coyote. Okay. I'm not paying attention. When, okay, the Panthers just focused. made it to the finals, man. Come I'm not paying attention. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway. I know the so, Panthers were in the final. I know that one. Yeah. We watched the Panthers. We did not sleep hockey. for a month. I remember that. Oh. It's the most exciting game on the planet. It's hockey. What? Anyway, what? This guy. Football, basketball. <laughs> actually, he, he's not Russian at all. He's uh, or Ukrainian. He's, uh, he's American. He was born in the U.S. But his parents are from Belarus. So a witness found that or saw a BMW which hit a curb and a sign and the car was pulled over and he was with his father because uh, apparently his father came and picked him up from this scene and they were pulled over by the police and his father tried to calm the situation but it was clear that he was in the passenger seat completely wasted. And according to the report, he the, the we're talking about the son now, Alex. He was agitated, erratic, and when he was asked to get out, he was struggling, and he started to make threats towards the police officer and said things like, "quote I'm going to chop you, your family, your wife, your daughter. One phone call and you're all dead. Your whole family, your bloodline is dead," because he was citing connections in Moscow. The man is American. <laughs> He's an American, but I guess, you know, if you're going to threaten somebody, you know, that threaten someone with Moscow, I guess is the place you're going to threaten them with. But, um, he is now, he has now been terminated by the Arizona coyotes. He has been, so he was terminated by the Arizona coyotes. He has entered, he apologized for all of this and he entered into the NHL's rehab program. Hopefully he will get his cells together and he'll get another chance and our pension for giving people another chance. Almost certainly he will. He was on a one-year contract by the way, which is not the time to go driving drunk, especially by the way, in Arizona, Arizona is really a bad place and Phoenix and Scottsdale is a really, really bad place to go drunk, to go driving drunk. 
that, that um, in which in what sense in terms of the the consequences the punishments the fines or i don't know if he's still there but there used to be a sheriff that ran oh. um that county that if you were it was it's maricopa arrested, county it was sheriff it was, or, yeah arpaio or something arpaio, like that right? oh right if right right caught, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you were caught with a dui it was an automatic year they didn't even bother um with anything and and there was that 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 jail where they put you in pink clothing and it was it was a whole thing. yeah was... i had patients that were actually housed in that jail when i worked at the state hospital there and they would talk about the pink underwear and the bologna sandwiches yeah. that they were given and that was it it was um it's a very interesting county. At least it was at the time. I th think the sheriff's name was Joe Arpaio or Arapaio or something like that. Um, but yeah. yeah. So that's his story. Uh, the next story, this, that was the, the, the coyote story was sort of under the radar. The Bob Higgins story was not under the radar at all. Bob Higgins. No, this got, this went on for a while. It, it's still going on now. Bob Higgins, was suspended after he made a homophobic slur during an interview. Uh, we are not going to clip that, but just trust us that it was, in fact, a homophobic slur. He was suspended for three games, and his salary was, was reduced by $1 million, and it was changed so that it then needed to be renewed on a yearly basis, which you would think would be enough to change behavior. But no, later on, he was then arrested in Pittsburgh, June 16th, after failing a field sobriety test. And then the next day, the school and the athletic director released a joint statement that said that Bob Higgins was resigning. Now, here is the statement as read from ESPN. This is a statement in part from Coach Huggins addressed to Mountaineer Nation. Today, I have submitted a letter to President Gordon Gee and Vice President and Director of Athletics Ren Baker, informing them of my resignation and intention to retire as head men's basketball coach at West Virginia University, effective immediately. My recent actions do not represent the values of the university or the leadership expected in this role. While I have always tried to represent our university with honor, I have let all of you and myself down. I am solely responsible for my conduct and sincerely apologize to the university community, particularly to the student athletes, coaches, and staff in our program. I must do better, and I plan to spend the next few months focused on my health and my family so that I can be the person they deserve. Now, I, I want to say this. I was calling him Bob Huggins. Uh, Bob Higgins. It's Bob Huggins. It's Huggins. Uh, mm -hmm. It's Huggins with a U. Um, so that's his statement. Well, what they say was his statement. What's interesting about this story is that he's come out recently, a month later, almost a month later, and said he never wrote that statement and that well, he never that, resigned. Well, that's awkward. <laughs> and that he's and that not only did he not write the statement and that he never resigned, but that he's just still the coach. That you know what, guys, I'm still coaching, and I'm just gonna go start coaching. And West Virginia's like, nah, bro. <laughs> no, that's not the way that happened. <laughs> meanwhile, meanwhile yeah. he gets his like, he gets his like, bet. Bet. <laughs> He's like, bet, bet yeah. Bet. Like, bet. That is a great use of the term bet stuff. I mean, maybe he just didn't remember writing it because he was drunk. I mean, it's possible. 
He has a long history of drinking. For the record, I still don't know what that term means, but I'll take your word that it is a Bet. good use of it. Um, I, I, I can't even begin to explain why he thinks this, but I think I could tell you that him and his lawyer sat down and his lawyer said, you know how much money you lost by agreeing to that statement? And he's like, no, tell me. And he wrote down a number with six <laughs> zeros after it, or maybe even seven zeros after it. And he said, holy crap, what can you do about it? And he said, well, you know, we do what everyone else does nowadays. Just say it never happened. Oh, <laughs> you know, and we'll go, okay, you think it'll work? <laughs> like, well, maybe, you know, every, everyone else says things doesn't happen anymore. And we'll just, you know, go and gaslight people. But uh, West Virginia is yeah. not buying any of this stuff. So Bob Huggins has a, an actual history of, I don't want to say alcoholism, even though I did, did just say that. I'm not claiming that, but he's had issues in the past when he was the coach of Cincinnati. So this is not a first for him. And then there's another story that came out that's even more depressing than that. And this one is is just soaked in just everything that you could think of that will make you sad. The Dewey Alley story. Oh, yeah. Who is a uh, soccer player or football as they football. say, in he plays, he, he plays in England. Football in England. What what team does he play for? Is it Tottenham? Everton. I think it's Everton. Everton. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He or, transferred. Or, yeah. Everton he transferred from from Tottenham to Everton now. Yeah. Right. Do you want to tell the story, Steph? Um, so I don't get it wrong. Well, it's a it's a it's a long. He gave a, a long interview um, where he you know he dove into um, disclosing that he had gone to rehab. And I think a lot of people were shocked because nobody, I don't, I'm not sure if the football community knew about it, but I felt, I, f- I feel like nobody knew about what he had been dealing with and what he went through. So he essentially said that he had benefit from going to therapy and to rehab. And he went back saying, explaining how he ended up um, being addicted to narcotics, um, mainly sleeping pills. Um, and I think essentially what he said um, is that he had multitude of traumas in his childhood growing up. You know, there was, he, he recounted his story of uh, physical abuse, even sexual abuse that, is, that he, he suffered from. He had um, involvement with gangs. He, you know, there's one story he gave that he was pushed from a bridge or, or hung by, uh, on a bridge. And, um, and, you know, throughout his, his teenage years and, and adult life, he had been coping with self-medicating himself with substances, um, mainly uh, um, narcotics. And then, you know, but he gave a lengthy interview. I think we have some, some clips to put into, into context because I, I don't want to take any, any, anything away from his testimony. Right. right? Because so I think it's so, so, him. so, and I think I, it's, it's so important for, for people like him, people that have the spotlight and and uh, you know it's so noble, so so brave of him sitting in front of a camera, knowing that he's a public figure to disclose his most intimate, most private traumas to the world, just in the in the in the with the with the goal of destigmatizing mental health and making going to rehab something normal. So I think that that we cannot mm-hmm. talk about this you know this topic without giving him his his flowers for for doing so. Yes, if you want to watch the whole interview it's about 45 minutes long it's on youtube uh i have about three clips i have three clips to play 
this is him talking about getting sleeping pills when he was um he started getting them from a doctor, but then he started getting them outside of the doctor. This is from the overlap with Gary Neville. This is who did the interview. It started with a doctor. A doctor was giving them to me to sleep. And then it turns into more than that. I think when you want something, you'll find a way. Um, so you're getting them outside of the game then at that point? Yeah. But you were at the start getting them in the game? Yeah. In acceptable quantities, would you say? Or At the start, yeah. Yeah. For sure, like it was one to sleep, that was what it was. Yeah. And for, and for most people, that's fine, you can handle that. That's all you need. But for me, it was fixing something else that I didn't know I could fix. And you hold on to that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what all of our patients have said, right? When they, well, those that really want help, you know, they, I, I'm sure you guys know, um, what is it, the, the, force, the, the stages of... of um, of changes, mm-hmm. um, the, the, and then there's a, when they are, there's pre-contemplation when they deny having a problem. They don't think they, that there's they a don't think there's it. A, right. And mm-hmm. then when they get into, in, when they get insight into the problem, they like, in, then contemplation. That's phase, contemplation. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when they're really acting into making plans into getting to rehab, you know, then activation um, uh, phase. So yes. our patients, those that disclose this kind of traumas and this kinds of unhealthy coping skills you can tell they are at least in contemplation phase right because they already acknowledging that they have an issue you know and obviously the the stage go around and then people have, have um um you know stages where they actually are, are free from substances and then they have relapses right so yeah. um, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a cycle um i think it's called uh, and we know that relapse of, is a part of recovery right, right. I think it's called the trans theoretical stages of, of it's the trans theoretical model, right? Mm-hmm. Model of changes in addiction. Um, but yes, you know, him disclosing that not only he shows insight, but also he acknowledges the reason why he got into substances, not necessarily was delinqu- delinquency. You know, he might have looked like that from the surface, but he actually says he was doing that because he was suffering from a trauma, a past trauma that he never dealt with in a healthy way. And that's mm-hmm. that's what happened without reading data is probably to our close to 80, 90% of our patients. You know, obviously there's 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 a portion out there that's been rooted in in crimes and in in dealings and street drugs and stuff like that. But the vast majority of people that are in treatment are people that get into drugs to self-medicate the, their their the sorrow or the trauma. Correct. And we also know too that there is a lot of dual diagnosis where people use drugs to self-medicate, not just from trauma, um, but from things like depression and anxiety and other disorders as well. Other and ins- insomnia, you know, one of the insomnia, most common yeah. one, of, one, of, one of common most common addiction is, is benzodiazepine. People that start taking, you know, sleep medication and can't stop, or anxiety, people that start taking, you know, anxiety medication and can't stop in, you know, in 20, 30 years. They become reliant on it. They right. become and, and, on it to control what they need to right. control. And and the main common thing that we've been seeing in the news, for good or bad, it's a uh, pain medication that people have been, you know, some people give you the, the classic story that they went to the dentist or they had a surgery or they had a, you know, some kind of, of you know, broken bones. And then next thing you know, they'll prescribe a 14 course of, of you know, 14 tablets course of, of narcotics. And then next thing you know, they can get it and get on the streets because they, they're hooked on, on opioids. You know, that's the classical story that you hear um, people that are victim from from addiction well this is a perfect segue because he mentioned that 
sleeping pills are very, very prevalent in in football, uh, soccer. Mm-hmm. But sleeping pills are also pretty prevalent in American sports too. And so let me play this clip right here, and then I want to point something out. This is him talking about sleeping pills in 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 European soccer. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. I think without me realizing it, the things I was doing to numb the feelings I had. I mean, I didn't realize I was doing it for that purpose, um, whether it be drinking or whatever. I think they're, they're things a lot of people do, but if you abuse it and use it in the wrong way and you're not actually doing it for the pleasure, you're doing it to try and chase something or hide from something, it can obviously damage you a lot. So it started with that. Um, and then I, was, I got addicted to sleeping tablets and it's uh, probably a problem that you know, not only I have, I think it's something that's going around more than people realize. Uh, in the game? In football, yeah. Last year, Derek Carr had a, a mini episode after the Raiders lost to the Colts. And he got really emotional at the podium after the game during the media session. And he said, quote, I'm pissed off about some, some of the things, you know, that's a lot of us try and do just do just to practice what we put our bodies through just to sleep at night. And that implies, you know, well, what do you think? I mean, he didn't come out directly and say it, but like, what do you think he's talking about? You know, um, it's probably not. I mean, he, he was one of one of the alley that that were vocal about it. But I, I would I would probably put a, a guess and I'm pretty confident about it that it's very prevalent in sports in general. You just don't know about it. You don't hear about it. And I think when it tends to flourish or to come to the surface is probably after retirement, when they not necessarily have a, a reason to get prescribed and they still have to, to they're still using these pills, right? Yeah. Because the body is the, the, the body is dependent on these pills. Not because they're getting hit every single Sunday, but because the bodies, you know, they withdraw you from this medication. And that's when they tend to, they get insight, I guess, that they it's a problem. But throughout their career, they can easily rationalize it, right? Oh, I'm, I'm playing on Sunday. I'm in pain. Whether they want it or not, somebody's telling him, okay, this is going to help you out for, for Sunday um, mm-hmm. or for, you know, for, for, for Monday or whatever it is. And they get an injection, whatever it is, but the toll that it takes on their bodies is really telling. I mean, look at Vontae Davis when he retired. Um, was it Vontae? Da- yeah, he retired in the middle of a game. It was at halftime. Yeah. He retired for the Bills. He used to play for the Dolphins, then he retired. Yeah. Middle of a game for the Bills. He was done. Yeah. You know, we we, we talk a lot about... Um, in this, in, in our podcast, we mentioned athletes and superstars and celebrities and and mm-hmm. and peers and whatnot. But I think to go back to to Bob Higgins, um, I think it would be fair to say the most common addiction that goes undiagnosed and that goes under under the radar is probably alcohol use disorder. Yeah, you know, we all know someone. I mean, I I, I bet you all you too know someone, a friend or a family member that you'd say, oh, I mean, I think that guy's an alcoholic or that woman's an alcoholic. But the function, right? They function, they, function. They, go, so, they, go, they go to work, they, they raise their kids, you know, but you see them, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, at all days of the week, they have a, a, a drink in their hand, at, you know, and then you're like, but you, you think of yourself of a social drinker, but then you see the, the contrast with that friend or family member claiming they're a social drinker and you can see the contrast. Correct. And I think it's, it's a, I, I think we should take that opportunity to actually 
shed light on the on the sign and and and, and cues of what alcohol use disorder may be. You know, some people might be oblivious to it or might not want to face it or have family members that they have an idea but they they cannot really put a finger on it. And I think uh, we can and actually talk about other that times. Yeah, sure. And other times too, you have family members that tend to enable or dismiss what the other person is going through. So for example, Huggins' daughter, she was asked and interviewed um, for WTRF um, about you know her father and what was happening. And her quote is, my dad is not an alcoholic. He drinks like 90% of us do and made a mistake that cost him his job reputation and his livelihood. Yet we know from other articles that have been written, but Huggins has had a long history of a relationship with alcohol, has always drank alcohol, but he has managed to function in his career and have a very successful career. But at this point, between the homophobic slurs and now he's in trouble with the law with the DUI, um, it has caught up to him. But the daughter still tends to be um, somewhat dismissive over it and explaining away all of the beer cans found in his car as that her dad likes to recycle. That was her wow. statement as to wow. why the, all the beer wow. cans were there. He collects cans to recycle, always has, always will. That's his thing. To act like he was driving around pounding beers as the media wants to portray is absolutely absurd. These are the statements of his of from his daughter. And then she said that he told the board that he would go to rehab for a 60-day stint to be able to stay for these guys. So I'm not sure if this is before or after his um, alleged resignation. If we're going to call it that since he doesn't remember right. writing that letter right. um, because the guys don't want to play for ev everything else. That's how much he cares. And that she's stating that they refuse to allow him to do a 60 day stint. Well, I mean, we don't know if she's really making that statement, you know, with, with, with good faith, that, that would mean that she doesn't know and her father hide things pretty well, or she's just, you know, you know denying it right or right. you know making issues for it and and i think there are signs that we've i've seen people you know at the, in the homes when they're drinking in the morning on, on a tuesday night you know they, they they conceal the drinking if you're in the point where you're concealing your drinking that's a problem I, i've seen people drinking you know a, a shot of vodka at 10 a.m. in the morning and all they put in a plastic bottle, you know, to walk around mm -hmm. and it's water. Right. And there's a, we use a simple questionnaire um, in the medical field and, and, you know, mental health field to, to question people and have an idea. It's a screening tool and, you know, it's super, it's fairly easy. People can actually retain it pretty easily. And it's a cage questionnaire. Right. And I'm not sure, but I think it might have been developed in, in at Johns Hopkins. I'd have to check that. But um, the, the, it's, a, it's an acronym, CAGE, C-A-G-E. And when you ask somebody this question, each of these four questions, um, you get a point. And the first one to see is when you ask the, the person that you're assessing um, if they ever felt that they should cut down on their drinking, meaning that if, if you know, they have been starting to, they're drinking too much. If you have that, a, a hunch that you're drinking too much and you need to cut, that's one of the signs that you might be using alcohol a little bit too much. The second question, which, which, the, which is the A, um, is have any people, a friend or family, um, have annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? You know, do you get irritable when people point to, to the point like you're drinking too much? You know, do you feel like you, you're always being... Um, 
pointed at. Um, and the third question, which is a G, is um, if you have ever have felt bad or guilty um, about the drinking, to the, you know, drinking so much that you feel like it's a problem and you feel guilty about it. And the last one, which is the E, um, it's the most common one that when you think it's really, really bad, is the eye opener, you know, for E. It's like when you wake up in the morning, you take a shot of vodka or whatever the liquor it is. And the reason being is actually physiological. It's basically your body is dependent on alcohol. And when you wake up in the morning, you can already get the, the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And those withdrawal symptoms, you know, it's, you know, you feel really, really un, unsettled, a lot of anxiety, a lot of tremors. You can be, you can having profusion of, you know, sweat, profuse, profuse sweating, tremors, um, sweating, tremors and headaches, you know, feeling irritable. And, uh, you know, and that's when you know you need a shot. At, at eight, nine, ten, and as soon as you wake up, the first thing you think about is a shot of vodka, and that's when you know think things are really, really bad. Um, so if you if you know people that may may answer yes to those four questions, you know, as a screening screening tool, that's when you know you, you should, you know, you know, best way possible, you know, let them know that they should see a specialist, you know, yeah. and there's treatment for alcohol, and I guess the the we should also go quickly into the treatment. The, the first one, obviously, is therapy. Um, you don't have to do medication um, for alcohol use disorder. It's yeah. therapy. And then that, that's what we call, if you want to go into it, Suzanne, it's, I think it's motivational um, therapy, right? When you challenge somebody with, with addiction. Yes. But you also do other types of therapy as well, because, you know, like we said, most of the times when people are using substances or alcohol, it's because they're self-medicating because something else is going on, whether it's trauma, some underlying other issues. So definitely um, therapy to help aim at one of those root causes is vital for it, not just not using or lessening your use, whatever it is. The other thing too is, um, you know, I know that we talked about suicide earlier and we provided a hotline for that, um, but we also have the substance abuse and mental health services administration it's a national organization and they do have a hotline as well um, for people who are actively seeking um, out alcohol and substance abuse issues and that's 1-800-662-HELP which translates to 437 um, 4-3-5-7. and that's the hotline for that for people seeking help yeah, and and I think people uh, know what the AA is. AA is everywhere. You know, I call it anonymous. It's everywhere. It's not an excuse not to go. It's it, people do it in church. They do it in the house. You just go online and you can you can actually type closest AA meeting next to me, and you can actually pop in. People don't ask any question. There's no sign. There's some sign sheet. Just walk in and 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 go to AA. And um, and lastly, if that's therapy and, and and group therapy, but we can mm -hmm. also have what we call MAT, uh, medication-assisted treatment for alcohol use disorder. There's medication that you can get prescribed that would help you decrease the craving of alcohol. And I think mo the most common that we've used is naltrexone um, um, for alcohol use disorder. But there's, dif there's different type of medication um, that you could there's use for. There's also Campro, too. Cam yeah, Campro is one of them. And uh, um, is that is that Dalsuferim, Campro? I, I think it is. Um you know, the yeah. interesting thing about not being a resident anymore is I don't remember any of the generic names. In right. <laughs> I mean, that, 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 that's so for me, but, but, but there's a few different medication. Um, but the one I've used most often is Nautrex. And I've also used like, Gabapentin um, as alcohol yeah. use yeah. for, for cravings and anxiety. Um, but yeah, that does Neurontin. help out there. 
Neurontin, exactly. Yeah. There, there's help. There's help out there. So, um, yeah. Why? Wow, guys. Why so serious? <laughs> <laughs> it's serious Sunday. It's, it's serious. I mean, we have we have. It's I mean, Sunday. we're gonna have to put a trigger alert for this episode. We talked about suicide, and now we talked about alcohol. People's gonna, yeah. you know, they might turn it off, man. Like they. But these are important we, uh, issues. These are important issues. We're not taking your alcohol away. We just want to make sure that you're aware. You know, we can't. We can't always. We can't always have poop. Poop stories. No, Isn't it like you're so. you're only an alcoholic if you drink more than your doctor? health tip of the daytime day full of hiccups need a shake up listen up it's the psych effect podcast mental health tip of the day and of course it's brought to you by nobody as usual but nobody. today want want but today it will be brought to you or spoken to you by suzanne and suzanne please do enlighten us with our mental health tip of the day I will serve to enlighten you. It's important to really reflect on your day. And so one of our mental health tips is to find three things you are grateful for each day, just to remind you of the things that are important to you and the things that make you, you and support you and find where you find strength. That's fantastic. What are you grateful for, Suzanne? What am I grateful for? <laughs> I'm grateful for vodka. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm... <laughs> well, I mean, this, this, is the wrong, this, is, this is the wrong episode to say that. I know tie-in. that's why I had to say it. You know that. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, I am grateful for my children. Yeah. I am grateful for football. And I am grateful for having a wonderful support system with my friends. What about you, that's the, that's Steph? Well, I'm I'm gonna be very corny, guys. I'm I'm grateful that I can wake up and see the you know the sunlight. You know, I appreciate the little things in life. Grateful for my family, and grateful to do cool things like like being doing podcasts, things I never thought I would do, and get outside of my comfort zone and, and grow and and do, go to the bad things and the good things and experiencing life in all its ways. And you know, just the little things in life, not the complicated things. Yeah, mine are really going to be very similar to both of yours. And these are in no particular order, of course. Um, yeah. I'm grateful for this podcast because this is something I've wanted to do for a really long time. And I'm really, really, really happy that we're doing this together. Uh, I'm grateful for sports, man. I love oh, yeah. sports. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to leave that one out. I'm grateful for the heat. <laughs> and, and without sports there's no podcast too right no, that's um, right and of course my family my wife and my kids and all of the extended family the huge extended family so yeah those those three things find three things you're grateful for and not just find them but tell them to yourself look in the mirror right and tell them to yourself and yes. you will find you will find peace anxiety will be helped so that's your mental health tip of the day remember like subscribe follow and please, critique and please leave a Comment. written review 
written review. We do. We do read them. You're listening to Spotify, Apple. Uh, Those are the ones that help us the most. Uh, Thank you to whoever wrote that one review that we do have. Uh, We do appreciate it, uh, but we we would love more. Um, Yeah. We've got, we've got some, some, you know, undercover critiques as well. Like that, that goes outside channels. We don't think, you know, no hard feelings, guys. That's Just true. Write it down on the, Just on the write podcast. it down. It's okay. We, write it down. As, as a matter of fact, we do get written reviews. We just get them through like text. Right, right. We get every <laughs> yeah. perfect. So people no text hard feelings. us. Thank you. Just put it there. Just put it there. We are grateful in, also uh, for you, the listeners. That's right. We are yeah. grateful for the listeners too. Uh, please put the, your critiques into the written reviews because we, uh, we can't do that for you. Um, but yes, thank you guys for listening. Um, right. You are listening more often because we are growing and um, we're not going to be able to keep doing this if you don't. So we do appreciate that you are and we're going to keep doing it as long as you're listening. Yeah, it's a movement. So thank you for joining the movement. So, All right. See ya. All right. See ya. Peace. Bye. Peace. The previous podcast represented the individual opinions of Dr. Dimitri Bick, Dr. Stefan de Graff, Dr. Suzanne Mignon, and the guests. It should not have been taken as medical advice or an establishment of standard of care. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.